This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Final arguments are underway in a one-punch trial that claimed the life of a 22-year-old man. The victim died of blunt head trauma after being punched following a confrontation with a couple. Romina Dea was in court today and has more on the evidence and the argument from defense. Defense told the jury the accused did what any one of them would do, adding there is no evidence of planning or intention to cause harm to the victim. You guys, will I be able to get a comment from you? Lawrence Sharp testified he was defending himself. Sharp and his girlfriend, Oldus Pournaruz, are each facing one count of manslaughter in connection to the death of 22-year-old Michael Page Vincelli. Both have pleaded not guilty. According to the evidence, Page Vincelli threw a lit cigarette at Pournaruz while she was sitting in her car near a Burnaby bank in July 2017. A witness testified Paige Vincelli called Pornaroos a dirty immigrant and told her to go back to her country. The incident escalated. Pornaroos told Paige Vincelli she was going to get her boyfriend to beat him up. Moments later, surveillance video shows both accused walked into Starbucks and less than five seconds later, Sharp punched Paige Vincelli in the face, who was eating chips at the time. Paige Vincelli suffered a skull fracture. After hitting the floor, he died in hospital. Crown told the jury the self-defense theory should be rejected because it's inconsistent with the video evidence and what Sharp told the police. Closing arguments continue Wednesday. Romina Dea, Global News. RCMP are investigating a shooting in Chilliwack that sent one person to hospital with life-threatening injuries. RCMP say the shooting happened in a home in the 9400 block of Victor Street around 1 o'clock this afternoon. At this point, no arrests have been made. Police are asking for anyone with information to come forward, but they do not believe the public is at risk. Fresh charges have been laid in a major gang investigation, including two men from the Lower Mainland, 22-year-old Moeen Khan of Surrey and 30-year-old Peshminder Boparai of Abbotsford are now facing charges of conspiracy to commit murder. Police are urging those men to turn themselves in. Meantime, two others from Ottawa have also been arrested and charged. The charges are part of Project Territory, a key element of Task Force Tourniquet, which has proven to be one of Metro Vancouver's most successful multi-agency gang crime investigations. 38 people are facing a total of 209 charges. Vancouver City Council is considering a motion to take a new approach to dealing with brawling in the Granville Entertainment District. Research shows the majority of fights involve people who do not live in Vancouver. And as Sarah McDonald explains, that makes it tough to collect fines. And the fighters seem to know it. If you get fined for fighting in Vancouver, it could cost you hundreds of dollars. Or at least it should. That is, if that money is ever collected. We need more accountability for crime that's happening in our city, and certainly this strip is one of them. 
But it can be a tedious and costly challenge for the city to collect on costs accrued by breaking into fisticuffs by anyone who resides outside of it. And that demographic makes up the large majority of boozers and brawlers, according to metrics from the Vancouver police. Most of the folks that are that are cutting uh, are getting in uh, the brew hahas are uh, are from outside the city. Nearly two-thirds of troublemakers booked in Vancouver jail cells on weekends live outside of city limits, which means there are no real ramifications if they don't pay that $500 fine. City Councillor Melissa DiGenova wants that to change. It's uh, people coming to the party from outside of the city of Vancouver. So our taxpayers are footing the bill for people who aren't from the city of Vancouver. She's proposing city staff consult with police and the province on policies or bylaws that would make paying up nearly impossible to dodge for drivers. Recommending measures like withholding the renewal of car insurance and driver's licenses until that fine is paid. If they want to really force them to pay, I think maybe take points off your license or something, right? Better control should be put in place somehow to uh, hold people accountable for, for fighting. One way for the city to recoup the costs of policing in the Granville Entertainment District, which runs over a million dollars annually, while simultaneously hitting haymakers where it hurts. And those fines could also be increased to up to $1,500. And that could really add up if and when the city ever actually sees that money with only 36 of 128 fines for fighting issued in 2018 actually paid out. Chris, that motion is expected to pass here at City Hall later tonight. And update at that time. All right, thanks very much, Sarah. The former chair of the Vancouver School Board is fired up tonight, calling out the province for failing to put its money where its mouth is. Patty Bacchus is accusing the NDP of acting just like the Liberals before them and dropping the ball when it comes to funding schools properly. Tanya Beja reports. Jordan Randall was planning on recycling these signs. I mean, I'm happy that I have them, but I'm shocked that I have to use them again. They were made to save A.R. Lord from the chopping block three years ago, but that school is facing potential closure again. I'm devastated along with many other parents here. My son's in grade three. My daughter is going to be starting kindergarten in September. So for us, we're in this school for the long haul. The Vancouver School Board needs to get its students into seismically safe schools and free up funding for other capital projects. To make that possible, it's once again looking at closing schools with low enrollment. Up to 28 are being studied, mostly on the city's east side. We want to get students into seismically safe schools as soon as possible and the province has parameters around the funding for their seismic program. In 2016, the district considered closing 11 schools, but protests ensued, and later that year, the province fired the board. Former trustees say the new provincial government needs to do better. Rob Flamet has the power to stop this. They need to change the requirements at the Ministry of Education, stop pressuring large, complex urban districts to meet unrealistic enrollment capacity targets. There is no pressure from the government uh, for the Vancouver School Board to force closures on the way the previous government did. Uh, what we are saying is, uh, you know, manage your assets. The ministry says it no longer requires schools to be 95% full to be funded for seismic upgrades, but districts do have to show they are optimizing available space. When you actually go into these schools, you won't see empty classroom after empty classroom. You might see a, uh, an art studio, you might see a music room, you might see students doing drama. 
Vancouver's draft long-range facilities plan will go to the board for approval in April and a short list of schools drawn up in September. But even the talk of closures detrimental to communities. Puts doubt in our public education system. Um, it makes people want to go into private school when they didn't have to. Their taxpayer dollars are already paying to operate these schools. Why would we want to instill fear in them if we can avoid it? Tanya Beja, Global News. All right, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on this. Keith, part of the criticism uh, for the NDP is because they had no problem calling for funding when they were in opposition, mm-hmm. but now the shoe's on the other foot now that they're in government. Yeah, and they're finding that on a lot of issues, Sophie. They spent 16 years in opposition. Opposition is easy. Everything's so simple. There's always an easy solution. But when you're in government, it's a lot different. You have to compromise and you have to make some tough calls. And not everything gets this done as quickly as you would think would be done if you're in opposition. So here's a list of just some of the examples of the NDP really not either keeping its promise or taking their time to fulfilling them. First of all, they're building the Site C Dam. They were were basically ready to head to the barricades to stop that thing. It's going ahead. Uh, Possible school closures remain on the table, even though that was decried over and over again by the NDP opposition. And class portables remain. In fact, they're being added in some school districts, not being uh, dismantled. Uh, BC Ferries, for years, the NDP denounced the fact that they were built offshore, but they're still built offshore, not in BC. And uh, BC Ferries remains outside of the highway system, despite a promise that it had to be part of the highway system. And finally, fish farms, which were enemy number one for the NDP and opposition, are very much still in existence in BC. There have been some changes to some of the agriculture licenses, but the fact is they're going to be around for a long time. Talk to a cabinet minister today, so he admitted, yep, yep, we're in opposition. Things seem so simple. We're in government now, and he pointed out, gee, governing, governing is hard. Opposition is easy. Wow, that's a quote. All right. Thanks very much, Keith. Meantime, search and rescue groups are also urging the province to restore critical funding that was left out of the last provincial budget. Right now, fundraising covers the majority of operating costs for volunteers, many of whom risk their lives to save others while still working full-time jobs. Aaron MacArthur explains how much funding was cut and why it's so critical. How you doing? You okay? Yes, you okay? I'm okay. Yeah. Monday night, another snowboarder out alone in terrain he shouldn't have been in, rescued by North Shore volunteers. Hours spent locating the man, all with little thanks and no pay. Nobody quite knew what happened, but it seemed like he may have skied outside the control area, snowboarded. Across BC, search and rescue teams facing a crisis. New training and new disciplines require more time and more money to complete to a professional standard. Last week, in the budget, the NDP cut a major source of funding. Many now forced to consider cutting back on services they provide. You know, we need to be able to plan long term uh, uh, so we can you know, uh, uh, provide for, for all of our basic costs and for our specialty costs as well. The money taken out of the budget was put there by the Liberals, paying for capital expenditures and for operational costs. Despite calling for more permanent funding in opposition, when the time came to provide that funding, the NDP left it out. But what we've said is that we want to, uh, to, to move to that stable funding. Uh, we want to work with them, and that's what we're committed to doing. And my ministry is working, in fact, uh, with Search and Rescue to make that happen. While there are calls for a paid service, many in the community feel the volunteer system works, but only if it's funded adequately. We're all volunteers. We all have full-time jobs. We have families, and we're maxed out, and we need support. 
a stable source of funding for search and rescue could be in the budget by next fiscal year. In the meantime, the government promises search and rescue volunteers won't be forgotten. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has won a critical victory, taking the Burnaby South by-election last night, a seat left open when Kennedy Stewart became mayor of Vancouver. Friends, we made history today. We made history today. The by-election was largely seen as a test of Singh's leadership. He won the riding with about 40% of the vote, securing a seat in the House of Commons ahead of the federal election this fall. But the New Democrats also suffered a setback Monday, losing a Montreal-area riding to the Liberals. And in the night's third by-election, the Conservatives maintained their grip on the Ontario riding of York Simcoe. I am very happy that he uh, he had such a great victory last night, a wide margin, which shows the level of support he has there. And, uh, you know, it's it's great that all uh, major parties now have their leader uh, in the House of Commons or will very soon. And uh, he's just a, a, a great fellow and a good friend. So I, I'm very happy for his success. New measures proposed today aimed at protecting people from paying high fees to cash checks and borrow money. The rules would target high-cost payday loans, which often leave borrowers in worse debt than they started. Grace Key has more on the possible changes coming. Well, many of these high-cost loans deal with expensive terms and conditions. So today, the Minister of Public Safety announced some proposed amendments to the Business Practices and Consumer Protection Act, and that would help people in vulnerable situations. So some of those amendments include setting limits on the total cost of borrowing, prohibiting certain fees and charges, and requiring these businesses to be licensed by Consumer Protection BC. Now, this would build on previous changes that introduced tougher rules on payday loans and check cash fees. Payday loan companies are developing new and different products that fall outside the, the regulatory framework. So you're looking at higher value loans that are paid over long-term installments. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that are, that are really starting to cause concern uh, for, uh, for us as a, as a government in terms of a lack of regulation and people falling into that, into that debt trap. A new consumer financial education fund would also be established. In Vancouver, Grace Key, Global News. But first, uh, it looks like the recent measles outbreak in Metro Vancouver is spurring the provincial government to make a major change in health care policy. As Kylie Stanton reports, by next year, B.C. parents will be required to declare their child's immunization status for school registration. On the first day of school, bags are packed with fresh supplies and students are ready to take on another year. But come this September, they're also going to need proof of immunization. That is what our top doctors are recommending. That is what the Canadian Medical Association and our ministry is recommending and that's what we're proceeding with. Pressure has been mounting for the provincial government to act in the wake of the recent measles outbreak in Vancouver. This online petition calling for mandatory vaccines in B.C. has been gaining momentum with each of the 13 reported cases. But to be clear, the move to a mandatory registration program doesn't mean a child must be vaccinated. Instead, it puts together a standardized registry of the immunization records for every student. This means that we can understand and respond much more quickly if we do have importations into schools in in the province. The provincial health officer and her predecessor first made recommendations back in 2014, following a massive outbreak in the Fraser Valley where 342 people were infected. 
The model is similar to Ontario's, where exemptions will exist for children who can't receive vaccines due to medical reasons, and if a parent does not want their child to be immunized because of philosophical reasons, there will be a protocol in place. I do think there needs to be a, an education process, whether that's taking a module or having a, a structured discussion with a, a clinician, and then a, an official form signed that says you recognize the risks of not immunizing your child. Immunized or not, all students will be able to attend school. So this is the vaccine. Still, it, has to it be seems many are already a step ahead. The demand has been exceedingly high. My wait list is in the order of about 80 to 100 patients right now. It may have taken an outbreak to get that kind of response, but officials are hoping it's a sign of things to come. I think the biggest thing is that um, we don't see these diseases, and when we do, we are reminded how significant they can be. Kylie Stanton, Global News. So what keeps a parent from doing the right thing and vaccinating their children? Too many buy into false claims and misinformation on the Internet. Now doctors are fighting back and targeting one group in particular. Some naturopaths are being accused of spreading outright lies about the best way to protect your children. Catherine Urquhart reports on those calling for a crackdown. The measles, mumps, rubella vaccine has saved millions of lives. Reactions are rare. Even so, the Doctors of BC says members of BC's naturopathic community continue to make false statements about vaccinations. How dangerous do you think it is that naturopaths are making these claims? In my opinion, I think it's, uh, it is very dangerous. Unfortunately, the more parents that don't vaccinate their children, the greater risk uh, to all of us. This naturopath claims on her website that most vaccines contain mercury. Not true. Childhood vaccines have no mercury. In the past, they had a small amount of the preservative thimerosal. That, too, is no longer in childhood vaccines. It's only in some flu vaccines. Approved. The College of Naturopathic Physicians of BC, which has promised to discipline members, declined several interview requests. All right, thank you. In an email, they told Global News that since 2018, just one naturopath has been sanctioned for vaccination-related advertising. And right now, 67 naturopaths are under investigation for advertising-related issues, 10% of BC's 668 registered naturopaths. The naturopaths have put forward an opinion. They lack the uh, overall general medical uh, education or experience or straight out ignoring the research. When people spread information that is inaccurate beyond their scope of practice while having the credibility of being part of, of a health professional college, that's unacceptable. Naturopaths who make false claims face a minimum fine of $500. But is that enough, considering how outbreaks can cost society and individual lives? Catherine Urquhart, Global News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
A B.C. couple was being shortchanged after a freak accident destroyed the Christmas gifts they sent to family. And it wasn't until they called Consumer Matters that the multinational corporation involved stepped up. And Drua joins us with the story. And mm -hmm. things got unexpectedly complicated for this couple. Thanks mm -hmm. to you two. This next story goes back, as Sophie mentioned, to December when a UPS truck caught fire. The contents inside were destroyed, including items belonging to a B.C. couple, perhaps more troubling, though, would be how their claim would be handled in the days and weeks to follow. Which is the latest? Which there was a lot of love and time and effort that went into collecting things for that, for that package. A package unexpectedly destroyed by fire. Back in December, a UPS truck went up in flames along the Trans-Canada east of Revelstoke. The contents destroyed, including Christmas gifts destined for Gisela and Dieter Howald's family in Alberta. Of course, I was concerned because of the fire, but also because there would be no Christmas presents for our daughter and her family. Immediately after the fire, the couple visited the UPS store in Kelowna to make a claim. They submitted a letter, along with receipts, in the amount of $204.96. However, they say they told the UPS manager they still had to find additional receipts. He said, uh, you can always bring these receipts at a later date and we simply add it onto your submission. But when they finally located the remaining receipts, they say the situation changed at UPS. There we were with the additional receipts of $95 that needed to be added on. And he says, there's nothing I can do, but I can offer you a uh, in-store credit in the amount of $63 and some odd cents. Making matters worse, the Howolds say UPS told them the two gift cards that were lost in the fire were not eligible for the claim and they should reach out to the retailers. But those retailers told Dieter and Gisela the gift cards were merchandise and therefore should be part of the claim. Dieter said he had had enough from UPS and contacted Consumer Matters for help. They make us dance and sing and we didn't get anywhere. Shortly after we reached out to UPS, the Howells received an email stating, we acknowledge your total refund requested is for $300.07 and undertake the responsibility to refund this to you within the next 10 business days, either in its entirety or less the two gift card credits provided that we are successful. All I can say, thank you global, thank you team, uh, you've done an awesome job for us. Gisela and Dieter have since received a full refund. When we asked UPS if it could offer an explanation as to what happened with the couple's claim and why their full claim was not accepted originally, Consumer Matters received no response. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Well done. Thank you, Anne. In a couple of weeks, B.C. fishermen will take to the Strait of Georgia for a controversial fishery. Some 200 million roe herring will be harvested, with critics wondering why B.C. is the only Pacific Coast region in North America that's allowing it. Linda Aylesworth reports. It has been called one of nature's most spectacular events, the annual herring spawn. Even if you're in an airplane flying overhead at 10, 15,000 feet, you can look down and you can see the turquoise water. It's one of the most remarkable phenomena that can be seen from outer space. 
It's the mix of eggs and sperm that clouds the water. Herring are one of the most important species in the ecosystem. These massive gatherings, a boon to the myriad forms of marine life that feed on them. Every herring is like a stick of butter. They are so full of lipid and fat, and it's, it's what keeps our ecosystem healthy. There was also a time when they supported numerous fisheries from California to Alaska, but no more. So all of the commercial fisheries have now shut down because of low numbers. The last commercial fishery that exists is right here in the Salish Sea. To be precise, near Denman and Hornby Islands, where the fisheries ministry has approved an opening in the next few weeks. We've got the science that says that there is a sufficient amount of stock to have a commercial fishery. Which, uh, so we will be having a commercial fishery. But not everyone agrees. Conservancy Hornby Island has over 62,000 signatures on a petition to stop the fishery, insisting they be left alone to ensure their own survival and that of endangered species like Chinook salmon, which feed almost exclusively on herring. We're taking their food supply out of their mouths uh, at the same time that we know that the majority of uh, southern resident killer whales' uh, principal food supply is Chinook salmon. Next month's fishery will take approximately 200 million herring, their roe destined for Asian markets, while 90% of the fish will be ground into pet food and fish farm pellets. Their value on the market, a few hundred dollars a ton. Yeah, I look at that one piece of the coast as being our, our bank account. It is our savings account for herring. I think we need to think about key areas that we could preserve and protect from fishing. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Residents of the island of Crete scream in disbelief during a live television report as their 111-year-old landmark stone bridge is destroyed by floodwaters. Other bridges and buildings on the island were damaged. Power was cut for thousands by downed trees. And one man was killed when his car was swept away. We could soon hear Jody Wilson-Raybould's side of the SNC-Lavalin affair. The Federal Justice Committee has asked the former Attorney General to appear tomorrow afternoon. That comes after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau partially waived solicitor-client privilege so that Raybould can speak freely. The Prime Minister's office has been dogged by accusations. It pressured her to help the Quebec firm avoid criminal prosecution for fraud and corruption charges. With a slightly nervous world watching, Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un are in Vietnam tonight to participate in their second face-to-face -face summit. The leaders will spend two days discussing North Korea's nuclear weapons program, which is on the verge of realistically threatening targets around the world. Trump has claimed their first summit brought an end to nuclear testing by North Korea, but his own intelligence officials doubt Kim has given up much, if anything. Well, we've all heard of travelers stranded on planes and in automobiles by extreme weather, but Amtrak passengers get credit for their incredible stamina. Nearly 200 people were stuck for 36 hours, now thankfully free from a trip they'll never forget. It was a modern-day marooning unfolding live from inside a train. Now this is the viewing car. Nearly 200 passengers trapped on an Amtrak for almost two days with no way out after a blizzard toppled a tree onto the tracks. It is dark, there is more snow on the way, and we are stranded for another night. 
The trip started in Seattle, heading south through the Pacific Northwest, until grinding to a halt Sunday evening, where it was stuck for more than 36 hours. Not knowing how long we were going to be on there, that was probably the most frustrating part. The uncertainty forcing people to ration food and water, club soda and pretzels for breakfast, parents using napkins as makeshift diapers for their babies. The snowstorm also knocking out power to the closest town, socked in with roads buried under four feet of snow. Train officials say passengers were kept on board because there was no viable way to safely transport passengers or crews via alternate transportation. This morning, a welcome sight, movement. The train is moving really slowly and we keep having to make stops. Mile by mile, crews clearing the tracks. You can see like all of the tree limbs that are down and whatnot. Reversing course to get to the closest station. Thank you for your patience. Where passengers couldn't be happier to get off that train. <laughs> to breathe fresh air again, uh, it feels incredible. It could have been so much worse, man. Gotti Schwartz, NBC News. People in the city of Eugene, Oregon have one less lunchtime option after losing a food cart in pretty spectacular fashion. A security camera captures the moment an explosion demolishes the Buck Buck food cart, which specialized in, you guessed it, fried chicken. The blast also damaged three nearby businesses, but thankfully no one was nearby and there were no injuries. Investigators believe a leaking line from a propane tank is to blame. In health matters tonight in the UK, London is taking a dramatic step in its battle against obesity. The city is banning fast food advertising from its public transportation system. Ads for food and drinks that are high in fat, salt and sugar will eventually disappear from the city's famed red buses and underground tube stations. London's mayor says he wants to tackle the ticking time bomb of obesity. But one advertising trade group argues the ban will have very little impact on the wider societal issues that drive obesity. Flying off into the wild blue yonder, there is plenty of that lately with all of the sunshine. And it's enough to make you not mind the extremely cold weather by West Coast standards. Yes, yeah, exactly. In comparison to those Becky's, nothing uh, like that. Tonight's sunset, by the way, just after six o'clock, I thought I would show you this image. It was stunning today, and this is what it looks like out there right now. Still quite stunning, in my opinion. These were highs for today, so not too bad. Out in the Fraser Valley, three, four degrees, sixes and sevens further west. This is still below seasonal. We've been below seasonal all month long. Since February 2nd, we have not had an above uh, seasonal temperature daytime high. These are the overnight lows. 20 out of the past 26 have been well below zero through the overnight period with some uh, like February 10th reaching minus nine and this is at the airport. We're on track to having the uh, coldest February on record for average temperature and it's all because of the outflow winds. Arctic Ridge of high pressure pulling those cold dry Arctic air uh, right out all the way across the metro vancouver so winds 40 to 50 kilometers an hour enough to drop that temperature tonight still a warning in place for house sound with gusts potentially up to 90 kilometers an hour look at how dry it was today though these are the relative humidities across the region this afternoon so we're talking 10 to 25 percent you probably noticed it with your skin you needed cream today oh boy it is dry and it's that cold uh, interior air being funneled all the way out towards the coast now what we're watching though 
is this. It is going to track towards southern BC tomorrow afternoon, bringing in a chance of flurries. Not much expected, but still snow flying in the air, very likely a few flurries, a light dusting potentially, and we'll see that uh, right through until Thursday morning with the mountains lightly getting the most of it. There are your overnight lows, a little bit warmer than yesterday, but you can see we're talking about lower teens to minus 25 across the area, and these are your daytime highs. So sunshine right across the board. That Arctic ridge of high pressure holding strong, but increasing cloud across the south as that system from the south pushes in, bringing in that chance of light flurries later in the day right into our Thursday morning, and then we return to sunshine and cold. And I'll leave you with a great shot from an area just near Kitimat where the winds were so strong that it buckled the ice on this lake. Really neat how powerful the winds can be that way. That is wild. Thanks very much, Christy. All right, dramatic video now. What must have been a terrifying ride for British Airways passengers. Whoa. Video shot from the ground shows the jet being tossed around by high winds as it approaches landing in Gibraltar. The Airbus A320 descended from about 40,000 feet to as low as 300 before the pilots decided, mm, let's not do this and divert. The jet landed safely in Malaga, Spain, and there were no injuries. But boy, that looks wild. Yikes. Lots of screaming, I'm certain. I'm sure a lot of bags were open. The bags. Yeah, the bags were open. Unless the pilot was just an old acrobatic guy. Hey, let me show you what I used to do, guys. (laughs) Hang on tight. That's right. Fasten your seatbelts, everyone. All right, what you got for us? Oh, what do I have for you? I have, oh, uh, oh, wait a minute. You have something for us. I, well. We do. Um, (laughs) It's way over there. Totally messed up. Do I have time to run over there and get it? Okay, you talk and I'll run. You have long legs. It should be quick. Tomorrow, of course, is Pink Shirt Day in support of the CKNW Kids Fund. It is the uh, one day of the year year when we all put on our pink shirts to raise money for the Kids Fund or toques. Toques. Pink pink toques. We're we're giving those out, too, while we're selling them. So, yes, we hope to see you down at the corner of... uh, Granville and, um, what is it? What is it? Nelson. Granville and Nelson tomorrow. Uh, I'll be down there very early in the morning. I'm on the board of CKNW Kids Fund, so we hope to sell as many of those as we can. Or at London Drugs. At London Drugs, that's right. And then be able to support anti-bullying programs in schools and otherwise through the CKNW Kids Fund. So hope to see you down there. How do I look at a toque? Well, you just did your hair, so. Uh, The Whitecaps have been given a complete makeover. They even have new clothes for this season. Uh, Their official unveiling will be Saturday when they start the season against Minnesota. Because of all the player changes, the Caps are in some ways kind of like an expansion team. They not only have to get to know a new system of playing with head coach Mark DeSantos, they basically have to get to know each other. Is a week of training together enough time for a team to come together? That's the big question heading into the Vancouver Whitecaps season opener. Caps basically starting from scratch all over again after an off-season of roster dismantling. What we need to do is try, uh, start creating chemistry between guys so we find the goal. And that's going to take a, a little bit of time. And I really believe that everybody in the locker room, despite us being almost a new team, having a huge belief that we could show up at BC Place and win the game Saturday. For a side that's completely turned over practically its entire roster, that sounds like asking a lot. 
The Caps were winless in the preseason. Vancouver 0-3-2 with just a single goal scored. But they expect that to change now with off-season signings in Baum and Freddie Montero ready to go. We would love to be back in Vancouver. I know the city, I know the league, and the fact that I spoke the coach, Mark, uh, the style of the game that he wants to input into the players and show that in the field, make me feel like, okay, this is the time. This is the right time to be back, and thank God I am here. What Montero is truly thankful for is being in a safe environment where supporters truly lift up their players, not beat them down. At Sporting Lisbon, following their team's elimination from the Europa Cup, 50 torch-bearing masked men broke into the team's practice facility, attacking several players with whips, sticks, and knives. Were you afraid for your life when that happened? Yeah, of course. Um, as a player, the, safe, the safer uh, place that you feel it's in the training facility and the fact that the fans came in uh, without any notification for us and without uh, having a possibility to run away from that, it was scary. Uh, probably the, the worst thing that happened to me in my life. But as I said before, uh, I learned from that. Uh, it's a, an experience that I have in my career, in my personal life, that I maybe will talk about in the future. But right now, and I'm so happy to be here. That's a, a, a plus, and, and I'm ready. I'm, I want to go. So last night, the Canucks beat uh, Anaheim by the score of 4 nothing. Boy, Anaheim's bad. Alex Biega scored. Horvat had a good game, a couple of goals, and Markstrom got the shutout. Um, the Canucks' chances of making the playoffs are a bit thin right now, but that, of course, helps them. Tomorrow they'll be in Colorado. Uh, Sports Club Stats does this running percentage of your chances of making the playoffs. So if you think about the two wild card uh, spots still in the West. The Canucks, according to this, have a 7% chance, but this is constantly in flux. If they started winning a couple of games, their percentages would go up, but that's the way they see it right now. Dallas and Colorado would get the wild card spots. Uh, of course, the Blue Jackets made all these changes, brought in Dezingle and Matt Duchesne from Ottawa, trying to make the playoffs this year. Now, the key is don't start playing like Ottawa. And tonight against Pittsburgh, well, they looked a little like Ottawa. Jake Gensel with a goal there. Jared McCann, remember, that's the guy the Canucks traded to Florida to get Eric Goodbranson, who, of course, they sent to Pittsburgh. Um, Oliver Bjorkstrand will score here for the Blue Jackets to make it 3-1 in the second, but McCann had a deuce in this game, and the Penguins won it. And if Montreal wins their game tonight, and they probably will, Columbus will technically fall out of a playoff spot right now despite all those changes. Uh, so last night, Clippers and Mavericks. Clippers are going to win. They're up by nine. Doc Rivers calls a timeout. So he can tell the crowd to give a standing ovation to Mavericks veteran Dirk Nowitzki, who's 40. Now, Nowitzki hasn't really officially said this is his final year, but everybody kind of realizes He's going to be 41 in June. He's not playing very much anymore. He's done pretty much everything he can in the NBA. His career is Hall of Fame worthy. So Doc Rivers giving it up for Nowitzki. The crowd jumps in on it. The Clippers players congratulate the great German. And there he thanks Rivers himself. 
Here's your snow report for today. Arctic Ridge right across the region bringing sunshine, cold temperatures, and no new snow. Minus 19 at the top of Whistler today. Sasquatch minus 13. Revelstoke and Fernie at minus 14. Whitewater a little warmer though at minus 8. Big White minus 15 today. Silver Star colder at minus 17. Kicking Horse minus 8. Mount Washington and Powder King at minus 13. Well, two high school teachers in the South Okanagan were recognized today for their heroic actions, saving the life of one of their students. As Global's Shelby Tom reports, it was also the first time the quick-thinking instructors met the 911 dispatcher on the other end of their frantic emergency call. PE teacher Steve Podmoro never thought he'd be credited with saving a student's life, let alone be called a hero. I don't consider myself a hero. Podmoro and his colleague Mike Russo jumped into action after grade 8 student Dilshan Dollywall collapsed during gym class at South Okanagan Secondary School last month. That was a pretty surreal. The 13-year-old with a known heart condition had gone into cardiac arrest. The quick-thinking teachers performed CPR and used this. <laughs> an automated external defibrillator, or AED. Dollywall was rushed to hospital and is expected to make a full recovery. He expressed a debt of gratitude from his hospital bed at BC Children's days later. If it wasn't for the AED machine and the teachers, like, being able to jump in so quick without any thinking, and then you'd be able to start CPR and using the AED, I probably wouldn't be alive right now. On Tuesday, the entire school packed into the Venables Theatre as the instructors received three awards for their heroic actions. It was also an opportunity for the instructors to reconnect with emergency personnel involved in the rescue. I spent a lot of time with the, the uh, person, the 911 person uh, on the other end walking us through it. He was kind of gasping, so that kind of led me to believe that it was more of a cardiac arrest. They were really great. They got the AD there real quick. Paramedics who rushed to the scene were recognized for their efforts. It was pretty amazing. It's It was one of those calls where, yeah, you, you won't forget. The humble educators shy away from the spotlight. I wish that, you know, if anyone is put in that situation, that they would do the same thing. But in the eyes of their students, they are real-life heroes. Shelby Tom, Global News. AED, hey, saving lives. Okay, don't forget. Pink shirt day. Be kind. Pink shirt day. Send tomorrow. your kids to school in pink shirts. Yeah. I know Will's going to school. Mm -hmm. Your boys too. Yeah. Or pink toques. Pink toques pink work as well. Ties. Or pink ties. Pink shirts. Anything. Just see if I have like. something pink. And don't bully. All right. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow.